This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. There are so many different elements to care and it's really for us about how do we engineer a care experience that is personalised, engaging and memorable. That's the voice of Ben Lynch. He's the CEO at Clinic Mastery. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hi there, I'm Michael Momsen. So today, Michael, we are delving deep into the healthcare industry with Ben. He runs Clinic Mastery, which is a training and coaching organization which helps healthcare businesses to grow their clinics by putting their customers first. And what we unpack today is what it truly takes to get to patient-led growth in a healthcare business. Yes, absolutely. And what I love about this show is, while it is absolutely around healthcare, it's amazing how the patient outcomes that are described are applicable across all service businesses. So, if you care about customer success and customer outcomes, then this is a fantastic show for you. Absolutely. So, to dive in, we started out by asking Ben to explain to us how a healthcare purchase is different from other types of purchases. Yeah, I think with the healthcare client, you're looking at something that's really deeply personal and sensitive. You know, they're they're not coming to buy, you know, a car or a widget or a phone or something like that. They're coming to reveal a real problem that they may have various uh, emotions associated with, you know, shame, guilt, they're scared, whatever it may be, they're presenting with a problem, an injury or an illness. So there's an added layer of sensitivity that requires the therapist, the admin, and even the way the practice is designed. There's an element that needs to encompass that empathy And so we sort of dissect health and care. Like you go to university, I'm a podiatrist by trade. You learn how to deliver the health service, like the technical bit. The care element is usually just assumed. Like you're a good human. You like caring for people, right? But it's not really taught. Is that changing out of interest? It's such an important thing, especially when you fast forward automation and technology supporting healthcare practitioners, actually more and more like technology and AI and all these types of things will actually do better jobs on the technical delivery. And so, therefore, it becomes more of the care and explaining, you know, the technical side and, you know, there's still a role for the, <laughs> for the humans through that process, but the care becomes arguably more important over the long term. Do you see the skills and the education growing in that area? I think so. I think it's a bit of a slower moving beast because it is so intangible, really, like care. You know, I can teach you how to do something for, you know, a person to help their symptom or problem, but care is really quite gray area. So it is a challenge to perhaps teach. One of the things that we do is really try and reverse engineer the elements of care and then design systems around how you could deliver it for people from the communication that's delivered, you know, online or in person through to the physical interactions and how you might actually welcome someone and nurture them through a consult and even guide them through the space. So there are so many different elements to care. And it's really for us about 
how do we engineer a care experience that is personalized, engaging, and memorable? And so what we're looking for, we call them moments of connection. So I'm interested in exploring this. What are some of the principles that are the same that could be learnt from, you know, hospitality and other industries, you know, like welcoming and empathy? And then what are some things that are unique to healthcare specifically? When you go and see a doctor or a physiotherapist, right, you don't want to be seen as, you know, another number. You you really want it to be personalised. You want it to be tailored. And so that probably differentiates from hey, I'm just looking for convenience maybe or price beat in maybe some other industries where I'm actually willing to pay a little bit more because without my health, you know, I can't enjoy all these other things. So health, I think, carries that differentiation there of I'm actually more inclined to pay more for a personalized, like you feel me, you know me, you're helping me as distinct from maybe just price and convenience. Sure, they play a role, but I don't think they're as preeminent as in other industries. What I find interesting is in the healthcare space, people are coming to buy this service essentially to fix some sort of ailment that they have, whether it's physical, mental or otherwise. Whereas in other forms of commerce, we're also buying products to enhance our lives in some way, to make things quicker or easier or to splurge a little bit or whatever. And so, healthcare though is always in that like I need to fix a problem kind of phase and it creates a very interesting problem set and and a very interesting client journey, I think. Absolutely. I think you've touched on one of the biggest shifts we're seeing in health, especially. I think globally, when you look at the wellness movement, really, that's happening, you look at how mainstream something like yoga is, maybe compared to 20 years ago, or even looking at the preeminence of all these uh, different diets that continue to come out or ways of approaching your body. We're seeing mindfulness really become top of mind for a lot of people, especially in business, dealing with the stresses of things. So I think the healthcare industry, as you mentioned, has largely responded to a problem, right? Someone comes in with a problem, symptom, injury, and they've been a solution. Whereas now I think we're starting to see health providers and also the community be a bit more proactive about their health and into that wellness space and go, you know what, maybe I should do something about it because I have a family history of it, even though I'm not experiencing symptoms, or actually I know that this is good for my life. It's better that I take care of my health now than later on. So I think we are seeing a shift which changes the business model and also the experience delivered because you're looking now at a model of retention or progression with a client, whereas maybe the traditional model of healthcare, which is symptomatic, problematic, is very transactional. It's kind of like, come in, I'll fix you. Maybe I'll see you once, twice, three, four times, and then that's it. Come back when you've got another problem. What we're now seeing is, oh, once they're better, they've got all these goals and dreams, run a marathon, you know, start a family, whatever it is, that I could actually be their health advisor going through that process. So that lends itself to the wellness side of things, the retention and progression side of things. So I think that's probably one of the biggest shifts that are happening at the moment. That's interesting. So let's talk about, you know, healthcare and sort of patient journey. And I'm interested in that you're using some terms like, 
you know, retention and loyalty. And I'm sure you even use terms like average spend and things like that. Things that we would typically relate to services industries um, like professional services or you know, retail, et cetera. I haven't heard them so much in a sort of health context. So it'd be good to just understand the maturity of that space, what it looks like, you know, what is a typical sort of patient journey and what are some of these key metrics that, you know, clinics um, are looking out for? There's definitely a common thought and approach in the health space around over-servicing. A lot of people are, you know, scared to be put into that basket and definitely want to avoid it. The conversation we're now entering into is that what we see is a lot of people actually under-service their clients because they're so scared of over-servicing. And what that might look like is you go along and you see a, a practitioner of any sorts and they say to you, you know, come back if you need. Mm. Well, hold on. I came to you as the expert. What do you mean come back if I need? How do I know if I I need it? And is that because the practitioner is scared to say, hey, come on to my seven-point plan. Like, let's meet every fortnight so I can, you know, pay off my BMW. Like, they're worried that that's going to be the perception when actually that seven-point plan probably is the right thing for them to get the outcomes they're after. Absolutely. I mean, my dad is a, a perfect example. He was in a you know pretty bad car crash and needed a lot of intensive physiotherapy. And he went to the physio twice and he needed probably eight to 12 weeks of physio after the incident that he had. And he dropped out of care after three weeks. I said, dad, what are you doing? He said, oh, well, we weren't getting anywhere. Uh, I said, yeah, but it's only three weeks. You had this massive injury. What's going on? Like, it's going to take longer than that. I said, were you working towards a plan or a progression? He said, no. He just said, like, come back next week. And so he was getting frustrated or thought, you know what? There's no progression for me here. So he stopped, even though he should have stuck on for eight to 12 weeks to get the outcome. But that therapist, for whatever reason, didn't feel that uh, he could communicate that was actually the progression that was required. So we see chronic underservicing, and that's one of the big barriers. So to come back also to your point maybe about metrics and so forth, I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. If you're a health professional that's decided to be in private practice and decided to open your own business, to ignore some of the pure business fundamentals of measuring statistics and metrics means you're going to go out of business or you're just going to struggle your whole life in business. And so what we look at is gearing the conversation around how well are we getting clients their initial result that they come in for and then looking at that optimization care of how can we continue to help them achieve their health goals and that's not symptom-based and that's the mindset shift. They go, well, I've only ever seen symptoms or, or problems now what we're doing is saying, actually, you could work with this person to prepare them for the New York Marathon, or you could help them in their desire to get pregnant or prepare them for the surgery that they're actually going to have. So that conversation shifts them to looking at how do I provide disproportionate value as a health advisor rather than just a you know, problem solver, which is definitely worthwhile. I'm not negating that there's a huge opportunity in that side and we want to measure their effectiveness with some of these statistics. 
This actually reminds me of a past episode we did with Dominique Levin, where we spoke about customer success. And it seems a lot like what you're talking about there, Ben, is to adopt the customer success mindset towards healthcare. And you talked about this uh, thing just there where you were basically helping people overcome their initial stated problem as quick as possible. I think Dominique in the episode called it time to value. How quickly can you get somebody their first bit of value? And then after that, shifting towards more of a consultative kind of mindset and going, all right, well, like, what are some of the broader goals you have and how can we help you achieve those? And so, that might not be the case for every client, of course, but if you're having a consultative arrangement and communicating well, and I think that communication piece is something that probably a lot of healthcare providers can improve on, that pivot from acute uh, problem fixing to uh, to long-term retention and customer success in a way, it kind of uh, brings it all to life a bit more. Uh, absolutely. The other side of it is if, if people aren't looking at that progression, they're just really burning through a lot of clients and it can be hard sometimes to get new clients at the level and demand that you might need to grow sustainably. Certainly, there are strategies you can put in place and we help people with that. But if you've already got someone who knows you, likes you, trusts you as as it goes, why not find another way to help really elevate their life and, and help them achieve things? So, so it'd be good to just unpack the actual patient journey, especially with the lens of it being experience-based, which is them having you know great experiences throughout. One of the things that we do literally is um, you know on a piece of paper or whatever tech you want to use is literally draw a timeline and just a, a big line on a piece of paper, and you can start right from the very beginning in your marketing and branding efforts as to perhaps how people might find out about you and eventually come and, you know, maybe make their first appointment or booking or service experience. I'd suggest definitely when we look at the experiences side of things, we'd start at kind of their first point of uh, interaction where they're coming for a product or service. So that might be their first initial appointment in a healthcare setting. And we'd look at from there, what typically would be required to create the rapport because we're now seeing a lot of uh, the research you asked earlier is showing that the power of communication in healthcare. I mean, we kind of know it inherently that if you communicate, if you listen properly, that's going to help. But a lot of the science now is starting to catch up with that and prove it. So we look at what would actually be required in the acute phase of their care to create the rapport. And often it is, you know, longer periods of time where we're actually in one another's presence. That could be virtually through telehealth or physically in a consultation. But we'd look at that first four to six week period that a patient would come to you Typically, from what I've seen across the professions, uh, I'll leave perhaps, uh, you know, GPs and medical specialists out of this, but definitely in the allied health spectrum, the first four to six weeks, there's often a higher frequency of contact and maybe a deeper level of contact. So we'd be mapping out what are the appointments that they would come to, what is the communication in between those appointments through email, SMS, you know, even video virtually, some of those education pieces that we can have to really educate that person about their body, their health with respect to the profession they've come to. If I'm seeing a psychologist, that's different to a physio. Typically, 
during that period of time, most professionals will have been able to solve someone's acute presentation. From that period onward, we might then look at taking you up to the uh, 12-week mark. What are the things that now progress you more towards preventative healthcare or that uh, wellness type of care? What are the appointments you might look at having? Uh, The exercises or habits that you might introduce at strategic time points along that. There's a lot of health professionals do it all at the front end and people are overwhelmed and then they don't do it. Their compliance is poor. So we'd look at the appointments, the interventions you might make or the habits and rituals you might introduce and the education pieces in between the appointments that you would give. So that's kind of a a broad map that we do, especially for the first 12 weeks from first appointment, day one through to 12 weeks. What are the appointments and all the contact periods throughout there? Yeah, that's great, Ben. And, and look, thanks so much for unpacking that patient journey in such a, uh, a huge amount of detail and for, I guess, all of those really tangible and tactical examples. That's great. It actually got me thinking as you were talking there about this issue of retention in the uh, healthcare space. We were talking a little bit earlier about this perceived issue of over-servicing that healthcare clients sometimes have. So, you know, is retention something that we should actually be thinking about from a business perspective? I mean, how do you think about it? Yeah, great distinction. I would just reframe it and say, we're not looking for retention, we're looking for progression. So, definitely retention speaks to the over-servicing type of model. If you're retaining someone on the same issue, then heck, let's provide a solution to them. Post that, we're looking at progression, a progression in their health. Now, you will measure a retention metric, like potentially how many times has a patient or a, a group of patients come to see us. Ideally, though, the distinction being they're coming for different services or outcomes, and that being on their progression of wellness and healthcare. I'm interested in any examples or stories that you have from doing this work with clinics where you've mapped this out and you've mapped out ideal journey and maybe what was sort of the before state and the after state and the the sort of results. Most people come to us and they say, I need new clients. We say, cool, you probably do, but let's have a look at what you're doing when those new clients come to you. And so we map it out and for you know various clinics, I would say in about a six-month period, plus or minus, we've mapped out their client progression journey and usually a clinic will come and their retention or visits on average that a patient will come into is somewhere around three to five visits. That's what we see typically in the allied health space. We will measure that over every week, but especially over the months because it takes a while for it to change and improve. We'll see very quickly in six months they can double if not triple that. So what that means from a business perspective is that you know if every uh, consultation or service delivered has an average fee of let's call it a hundred dollars, you know you're looking at an additional maybe three to five hundred dollars, of investment per client into the clinic and into their own health and service, which is effectively doubling the lifetime value of your client. So it's 
good for the business on the back end because definitely there's a financial gain. It's good for the client because they're now getting a progression in their health and they're investing in their health, which also lends itself to creating more raving fans because you know what it's like, oh yeah, I went to this physio, oh they, you know, they helped, oh right. But then you've got someone who goes, not only did they help me, they actually coached me through preparing for the New York Marathon, they prescribed me the right shoes, or a psychologist going, you know, not only am I feeling and functioning better, I'm actually showing up to work, I got a promotion, all these things. So we're looking at that progression and the outcomes for the clients, there's outcomes for the business as well. That's how we'd look at it. Can you tell us a story about someone who you've worked with and and maybe like what were some of the things that weren't going right in that journey? And then what did you actually do to fix those? In the early days, we worked with uh, the iMove guys, their physios in Sydney. At the very beginning, they started really with some session-to-session work. So a client would come in, new client, they'd go through an assessment, they'd provide some intervention treatment, and then they'd normally see them maybe for three visits, and that would be it. And that would be prescribed at the very beginning. And so there's probably a couple of problems then to unpack. One is like the, the the lack of long-term thinking. So it's a bit myopic. It's a bit short-sighted. The other is just a lack of communication about what that progression looks like. Because, you know, in your dad's case, there may have been a progression plan there that was just never communicated. And then so what did you guys change to resolve that? The two things that really changed were the actual structure of the appointment. So that that initial appointment where it's like, hey, as a practitioner, as the advisor, I'm thinking about how this is going to play out over the coming weeks. What I need to do is get toward the end of that consultation and actually verbally deliver that to the client. Actually say, here's the progression that we're looking at making. And at these points along your journey, we're going to retest and make sure that we're progressing along the way. And then that be uh, communicated through what we would call a management plan, which is like a treatment plan, literally an A4 piece of paper that has in layperson's language, here's the problem that you've presented with, almost like the diagnosis. Here's some of the things that are contributing to it or causing it that we can notice. And here is the plan, literally the sessions broken down, you know, session one, two, three, four, five, six, and what we're going to cover generally in each of those. Because obviously you can't predict how someone's going to go in three weeks, but we've got an intention for what we'll focus on each session. And so an example of that might be, you know, session one after their um, initial assessment might be we're looking at some mobility work. And that would be the general theme. And then we'd move on to uh, stability work, more um, exercises, looking at strength and conditioning. And then we might go on to activity work, which is return to the gym or return to activity. So that literally being the stepped progression with the client's outcome, uh, we might call it their significant event, their significant emotional event which is actually truly what they want on that plan. And that being not to have a pain-free foot, it's to play 18 holes of golf with my buddies without pain every Thursday and Friday. So that being the goal. So that's very clear, again, going back to that empathy and care. 
I've heard you. This is not just a sore foot, but this is what it means for you. So we've got what's the problem, what's causing it, what is your outcome, actually their outcome, not just a sore foot, but to play 18 holes of golf and here are the sessions we're going to do. And then the result of that is then at the end of the appointment, people are booking in six appointments in advance versus the next one and then getting to the second and then dropping off and going, you know what, there's no progression. All right, Ben, welcome to the Quickfire Round. This is our rapid fire game show segment. You've got 10 seconds per question. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. First question. What brand do you look to as an example of great customer experience? The Ritz-Carlton. Good one. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a chef in the very early days and then transferred to being a physiotherapist because I wanted to run around with all the sports stars. You know, the AFL, wanted to be in the AFL and the cricket, helping those guys. What skill are you terrible at? Oh, dashboards and number crunching. Mm. If, that's a, if that's a real skill, definitely in business, ah, terrible. And organisation is pretty hard logistics for me. I'm a bit more of a creative person than a mechanical person. What are you reading right now? I'm reading uh, the one from Seth Godin. I can remember as an orange case. Uh, this is marketing. I love Seth Godin. He's so wise. Ben, who's someone that you really admire? Wow. Uh, I'd have to say my wife is pretty incredible, and I'll get brownie points for that one as well. Uh, <laughs> but she, she absolutely is uh, incredible with our kids and also as a support to me to allow me to do a lot of the things that I love. So absolutely admire how she goes about it. And uh, yeah, we sort of are a team, but we're also super independent. So I love that team dynamic. What's a uh, non-work-related thing that you're really into right now? Golf. I'm really trying to improve my handicap and it's blown out terribly, but I love golf. I just started a membership a couple months ago, so trying to uh, get better there. Where do you go to upskill, you know, like books or podcasts or YouTube? What's your uh, what's your little uh, your, your channel of choice? Mm, definitely love the sort of audio visual versus reading. I'm very slow at reading. Uh, so YouTube number one and then number two would probably be audible for uh, audiobooks and then number three i'd say podcasts as well i tend to go searching for a specific topic and then i i usually start at youtube very good and lastly what is your guilty pleasure coffee i love it i just we go out for coffee every day with the family and i love making coffee i'm expanding my equipment in my house of uh, all these coffee pieces that I can make my own. I'm pretty average, but I have a crack. Let's switch gears, which is um, sort of interested in, like, how do you actually do this? Like, let's just talk some, like, practical tools for a moment, both in, like, the delivery of this, because, you know, I imagine, you know, for clinics, they may not have the sophistication of automation, both on the marketing side, inbound, but then also, you know, all these comms. Does it require tech and automation and all this stuff or is it just some good sort of principles and spreadsheets i would say it's a bit of both and definitely where possible tech 
helps a lot. I mean, your ability to be able to customize those moments of connection, you know, through email or video or SMS that reinforce and reflect the journey someone's going on are so powerful. For instance, if you're able to categorize, you know, a patient coming in with a certain type of condition or presentation, then they get entered into a communication automation that speaks directly to that, gives them tips and tricks of how to help them, that is powerful. So definitely looking at softwares to be able to do that is vital. And then the training of the team, I mean, providing these experiences incredibly rewarding and it can be a bit of extra work. So making sure your team are on board is super critical to this actually working. So a lot of the work we do with clinics starts with them actually engaging their team and getting them on board, and that might take a couple of weeks or months to actually do before the team are like, ah, okay, I see why we're changing these or why there are different expectations around how I'm treating patients who come in. Could you give us an example of a clinic that you've worked with that has gone through a similar journey, but where culture and people and team was really the the linchpin to, to get things to work a bit better? There's a speech pathologist uh, in Sydney that I think of that comes to mind who at the time when they came were really kind of burnt out and questioning whether they'd even stay in business, even though their business, quote, was, you know, successful. Uh, You know, they're personally earning, you know, around $500,000 a year and uh, their business was doing uh, a couple of million. So that's pretty good for a health professional. What we started with was actually defining a core purpose for that business. It had never been defined, even though you think, well, you're helping people. It's very noble. We actually got clear on, okay, why does this business actually exist? The core purpose and started to define that along with a mission that they would embark on over the next three years, a very specific, very clear mission. We then defined the core values. I think there were four core values that we ended up defining in the end that were core actions, not things that they just wishy-washy made up, but things they were already doing that were part of their fabric. We just wanted to identify them and amplify them by infusing them in how we recognized one another through the week with our wins of the week, through to how did we hire and the questions we asked, through to the mentoring we gave and using those core values in the weekly reflections of the mentoring that we provided. People would have to rate themselves out of 10 how well they lived out a core value and give an example of it. So that was one of the first things that we did. And the catalyst was, we call them a powwow, where you bring the team together half day or full day and you actually engage the team in releasing or launching those and getting their feedback on them. And it's a bit of a collaboration of them. So the owner will come up with maybe sort of the wording or the intention, and then it'll be refined with the group in a half day or full day session. So like what actually happened, like you, you mapped out, you know, purpose and, you know, some of the, the, the values and engage the team, you know, in these processes. How do they find purpose and click and go th- go go on the journey from there oh i'm, I'm hoping i'm hoping it has a, a hero's journey yeah well it, it definitely does they are now mentoring a few other people who are starting their journey at a similar space where they're looking you know what uh, i might throw the towel in i'm really at my wits end 
she in particular, the the leader of this business and clinic owner, has more joy, passion and fulfillment in her business now than she's ever had. Uh, she's now actually earning about 750k a year and expanding to a second clinic location, which is huge, I think is 2,000 square meters. And what were the key elements in the plan? The key elements in the plan were going deep on when they started their business, what blueprint did they have or what idea did they actually have in their mind of what life would look like and reconnecting back with that vision. So it took a lot of questions of, you know, give us the detail of what you thought it might look like. And then what do you want it to look like moving forward? How do you want the team to engage? What hours do you want to work what roles do you want to play in the business? What do you want to actually delegate more of? And got really specific on what she wanted out of it. So that was the game plan, was to just get really super clear on what she thought it was going to be and what she wanted. That took six months in combination with doing the team stuff. Now she's in a position where she's implemented a management team that actually take care of a lot of the operations she was weighed down with and feeling like, I don't want to do this, hence why she didn't have the passion. You know, it's a common chasm that a lot of people can't transition from, which is medium-sized business into large business because you have to actually remove yourself as high-value individual contributor and actually start setting up, you know, an actual proper company uh, operation and it becomes more of an investment into the team and where are we going and why are we here, etc. What have been some of the most um, important principles that you've seen and just sort of stories where that transfer of engagement and buy-in, you know, happens to the team members to ensure that that customer experience delivery or that patient experience delivery is, is always increasing? Number one is if you're going to go through this experience focus, it has to start with the team's experience of their work, of their life, of their role. Otherwise, you will not get sustainability. So I think going through the process or similar to what I described there with the speech pathology clinic in Sydney is really a must. The principle being that take it a little bit slowly. Don't rush to do these things because definitely you can undercook it and it will be pretty average delivery. It's much better that you just take it slow and be very purposeful about how you do things and very considerate about each step. I would say the second thing really alongside the team is to actually map out that journey and look at the different moments of connection that you could have in person, they being the consults, and in between the consults, what else you might be able to do, email, phone call, SMS, whatever it might be, actually plot them on a timeline and then work systematically through that timeline, maybe for the first 12 weeks over 12 months. I think people will rush to try and transform it in a month. Give yourself 12 because in the scheme of your business and your life, it's a short period. So they're definitely some key principles. What I found is that that same clinic owner, to go back to the story, it wasn't all roses and butterflies. <laughs> um, they definitely got to a point about three months into that journey where they were overwhelmed and again sort of hit that breaking point of it's too much. There were too many things now on the plate to actually do and they didn't know where to start or prioritize even though we're assisting them. And that comes back to trying to do it too quickly 
I think if you, again, like the patient uh, in the clinic, you actually set, okay, it's going to be six weeks or it's going to be six months. That being the key, I think, is actually set yourself 12 months to go through your client's journey and plot these out and set the systems in place, literally document how it's going to be done and who it's going to be done by. So I just want to pivot to our last topic, which is really about how to provide best-in-class healthcare experiences. So if you had a, a magic wand and you could wave it in the healthcare sector and kind of go bling, everything's amazing. What does best-in-class healthcare look like from an experience perspective? I think a big thing that the health industry could do better is actually collaborate and truly partner with the patient at the center of that experience. At the moment, we kind of collectively operate somewhat in silos, you know, and you are kind of dictating as the patient, I've got to go see the physio, then the doctor, and I'm kind of trying to get them all to connect and be on the same page. And you have to repeat your story 73 times. I think if the health industry became much more collaborative versus a podiatrist saying, oh, the physio's stealing my client or the physio working on someone that the osteo was going to see, actually to collaborate a hell of a lot more would be number one. Number two would be actually looking at the immersion experience of a patient in the actual clinic. So many clinics you go to look like the same old sterile, boring, drab place. Yep. <laughs> They're horrible. With 10-year-old with ten new idea magazines. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Dr. Phil and Judge Judy on TV, oh, which I, I, I don't think anyone else watches those shows unless, unless they're waiting for a doctor's appointment. <laughs> it pains me. Actually, there's a few good dentists that do it really well. I think the dentists are probably leading the way, um, rightfully so, because they're probably one of the worst places to go. <laughs> the dentists, I was there yesterday. They're so sterile. When I talk about immersive sort of themed experiences is that if you target and work with a certain part of the market, you, you have a niche that you work in, for instance, let's call it sports. Let's say you love sports people from maybe even a range of industries or a specific sport that when I come into your clinic, I feel like I'm almost at a sports venue and everything in it is immersive. I think a lot of pubs and bars now, if you go into a themed bar or pub, you feel like you're in another space and you lose track of time, right? Nothing worse than coming to a waiting room and sitting there, like you said, that same old experience. Why not have a welcome room that is completely themed and the whole experience, how people present and dress and speak and engage with you is completely in alignment with the theme of the market you're serving as well. I think that is a total experience versus the distinction of maybe just quality service. So a, a true immersion. So I'd like to see more staged and themed experiences. A great guy by the name of Joseph Pine, who wrote The Experience Economy, goes deep into this topic around uh, looking at the aesthetic, looking at the entertainment, the education, and certainly all things that engage the senses in your experience. So I'd love to see that as well as the collaboration. 
And and I love that uh, little terminology tweak that you dropped in there, which is rather than waiting room, it's a welcome room. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just... Full of uh, nuggets of, uh, of wisdom there, Ben. I want to finish up by just asking if you've got any recommendations for resources or tips uh, that you can leave listeners with on how to get started with this. I think a great book from our man Seth Godin at the top is Purple Cow. I think that's a brilliant book around really standing out and providing amazing experiences. The other one would be The Experience Economy, a book there by Joseph Pine and James Gilmore, as two incredible books to start with the, I guess, the lingo of experiences and really looking at some of the economics of it. There's also one more I'd throw in there to make it three is uh, Never Lose a Customer Again by Joey Coleman, which looks at that first 12 weeks or 100 days of a client's experience and what you can do to make it memorable and retain clients, create raving fans, essentially. So they're three great books and resources I would definitely jump on. And in combination with drawing your timeline for for a, a client's journey or patient's journey, a uh, really good way to, to get cracking with it and set yourself a realistic timeline of maybe 12 months. Don't try and do it in 12 weeks. Wonderful advice. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, Adam, another excellent show. Really enjoyed the conversation with Ben. Are you ready for the takeaways? I certainly am. Um, <laughs> and it was it was really great to unpack the healthcare industry, you know, in such a deep level of detail and, and Ben's experience and insight uh, into just like some of the examples he gave what was really great. So, this is our debrief, the section where we unpack our key takeaways from the episode. I'll start us off. So, the first big takeaway is that a service business really depends on having staff that have a huge care factor. Ben actually mentioned it in the episode. He said that, you know, people are willing to pay more for a solution where people know me and care for me. Yes, I've heard that before. Hashtag flywheel. <laughs> episode 41. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually really interesting. You know, know me, care for me. These are things that are part of our customer experience flywheel. And, and like you mentioned there, Michael, um, that's in episode 41 if you want to go back and have a listen to it. And really, like even service businesses are being commoditized at the moment. And so, I mean, really the only point of differentiation that they have is being really truly customer centric and having that care factor. Yes. You can get expertise anywhere now. So, what I'm really willing to pay for is when you know me and you truly care for me. That's what I'm willing to pay extra for. Yeah, I mean, that's the emotional connection, right, that you have with the provider of the service. So, uh, yeah, I can get a diagnosis anywhere, but um, getting someone who actually cares about my outcomes, my long-term outcomes, is what I'm willing to pay for. So, the second takeaway is at the heart of it, every service business is a customer success business. And to understand that success, it may not just be treating the initial pain, e.g. I have a sore shoulder, can you just give me some physio on that? The success is I want to play golf with my friends in 12 months time or I want to run that New York marathon. And so, really to get to that success, it requires a plan. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of the upselling or over-servicing because actually what's interesting is that people are underselling and underservicing. And so, setting up a plan for that end goal of success is something that 
delivers better customer outcomes and better patient outcomes. And I think the thing that was really interesting for me in you know creating that plan is the importance of the communication around the setting expectation, which is okay. So you want to run that New York Marathon in twelve months' time? Like you know, here's the ten step plan. Like we're going to have these eleven sessions, or we're going to go on this journey together. You know, here's where you are on the journey, and you know, from stage three to stage five, it may be a little bit flat. Like it's all good. Let's keep this goal firmly in mind around the end success outcome that you want. And then as you're building these processes around, you know, effectively executing plans and not just a single treatment, really the importance of measuring and bringing in automation to like continually refine that process because all of a sudden you're not just selling sort of a point and shoot one-off consultation, you're really selling a holistic success plan. So that leads in really nicely to the third takeaway. You know, we've got these great plans now and processes and procedures around them, but really to ultimately execute this well, we need the cultural change piece as well to go along with it because, you know, you've got a team that needs to believe in the vision that you're setting as a, as a business leader. So, just because, you know, you think that this is a great idea, it uh, doesn't mean that everyone else is going to come along for that journey straight away. So, the importance of that came to life in a couple of different ways. I mean, one is, you know, talking to the team and finding out what their goals and hopes and dreams are and how that fits into the master plan. The second is, you know, of course, doing the actual change management piece Then the third is it actually takes a while to do, right? So, don't rush it, you know. It it could take six to 12 months. And I think, you know, when we have this new idea, we just want to get it implemented straight away. Um, (laughs) I know I do that. Sometimes uh, that's actually counterproductive. So, uh, so yeah, don't rush it and uh, and focus on getting the culture right because that's actually what's going to make sure that the process is executed correctly time and time again. Yeah, so the fourth takeaway for me is that Ben had some wonderful stories of successful business owners that on the outside, you'd think, you know, sure, you could optimize some processes, but actually them having an attitude of being open to a coach and a mentor to guide you through creating these processes and really the magic happens in the implementation. And I think that requires like a mindset of, okay, like I know that I want our business to move towards these plans and these processes, but... I'm not the expert, I haven't done it before and I'm open to bringing in expertise, coaches, mentors to be able to help us on that journey. So, four wonderful takeaways. Let's sum them up. The first one was that customers are willing to pay more when there's a care factor. Absolutely. The second one is every service business is a customer success business and to get to customer success requires a plan. I love that. The third is that cultural and process change requires a long-term mindset. So, don't rush it. Yes, indeed. And lastly, to get the magic in implementation, have an open mindset towards bringing in coach, mentor, expertise for the ride. Well, another great show. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to connect with Michael or myself, you can find us both on LinkedIn. We read and respond to every single message that you send. We've had some really great messages lately from customer experience leaders, fans, so keep them coming. You can find a link to both of our profiles in the show notes. Excellent. Until next time, see you soon.
Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rate It. Rate It can help you capture in-the-moment feedback, understand the insights from that, and take action to improve the customer experience. So, to find out more about how Rate It can help your organization improve your customer experience, head to the website rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. This podcast is made in partnership with Wavelength Creative. It was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the episode. Our theme songs are by Icolix, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Adam Jaffrey. I'll speak to you next time.